0: to see each of you here this morning. I am glad to be here, glad to be back, and i uh, missed you over the last several weeks, but I am so thankful for a little bit of time we were able to spend away. Um, someone asked, well, what did you do while you were gone on your sabbatical? Well, we didn't really go anywhere exotic. I hate to burst your bubble. Uh, if you were thinking we were traveling the world, we went to the beach one week, and uh, the last little while I've spent a lot of time working outside and uh, cut and hauled 10 loads of firewood for my grandmother who lives up in the mountains spent a lot of time working outside cutting brush piling brush I told somebody uh, I'm ready to get back to work because all this manual labor is about to kill me Um, but we really enjoyed our time and I'm so thankful for you as a church family affording me that opportunity spent a lot of time reading Um, one of the most encouraging things I think for my sake and our family was really for the first time our family had the opportunity to go to church together as a family in one vehicle and so now it seems like we're up to three and so uh, coming at different times coming and going but that was really special we were able to travel and uh, went to several different churches went to church with some of our extended family and so uh, heard a lot of good preaching I'm thankful for Jonathan Goodman, who has been used of the Lord in my absence. And thank you, Brother Jonathan. I'm so very um, blessed to have him, so thankful for him. And I know that uh, the Lord has used him to speak into your life uh, in the study through Philippians. And so with that in mind, I want you to go with me this morning to um, the sixth chapter of Ephesians. And one of the things that the Lord was really working into my heart over the last several weeks, I did a lot of reading, especially in the area of prayer, spiritual warfare. I don't know if you realize it or not, but we are entrenched in a battle. The Christian life can best be described not as a playground, but as a battleground and we have an enemy who wants nothing more than to see our demise and our defeat, uh, who works against us really at every level of our lives, our relationships, our homes, our marriages. He wants to come against the church and sideline the church and sidetrack the church with all kinds of things to distract the church from the church's true mission, which is simply to make disciples to proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth, to preach the one and only message that sets the captives free. And Satan wants to come against the church in her mission. Now, I will say this at the outset of this series of messages. The overall war has already been fought and won by the Lord Jesus Christ. Which means that as believers, even though we're entrenched in a battle, we're not fighting for victory. But we are fighting from a place of victory which has already been given to us and secured by our faithful captain, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's precisely the Apostle Paul's point in this passage of Scripture in Ephesians chapter 6. I want to invite you to stand with me this morning as we read the Word of God together, beginning in verse number 10, Ephesians chapter 6. Now, I'll be honest, we visited a lot of churches over the last several weeks, and uh, Had a great experience really at every church that we went and were a part of. But one thing that I so love about Green Street is that whenever I tell you to turn to a place in your Bible, you hear the holy turning of pages. I like it. And uh, our our later service, a little bit younger of a service, you see more of a holy glow in that service as they switch their Bibles on. But the fact that you've got your Bible and that. um, We've gathered around the Word of God, and this is really the focal point of our gathering this morning. We're just so thankful. But Ephesians chapter 6, verse number 10, the Bible says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So notice in this passage, Paul is really sounding the cry, the battle cry. This is a Christian call to arms. And so this morning, I want to speak from that subject, a believer's call to arms. The Apostle Paul, in this passage of Scripture, wants us to know that we're involved in a spiritual conflict, but we're not without power, we're not without resources. And this conflict, really, it's it's twofold in nature. Uh, There's sort of a defensive posture that we as believers are to take, meaning that we simply stand in the power of Christ but it's not simply a defensive posture, but it's also an offensive posture, which means that we're to be on the go in the name of Jesus. Because notice ultimately there, toward the end of this text, Paul is saying that the ultimate purpose behind spiritual warfare, standing in the power of Christ and putting on the armor of God, ultimately it's so that we can be on the front lines declaring the gospel to the ends of the earth. So don't miss that. I know some people, when they think spiritual warfare, they think, well, is this going to get too charismatic? Well, it's unfortunate that a lot of people have put a lot of unnecessary emphasis on matters that are beyond the realm of what I believe is biblical. But folks, spiritual warfare is a fact of life whether you like it or not. The Christian life is a life of warfare. And the purpose of this passage is not to equip us so that we can engage territorial spirits and do exorcisms and all that kind of stuff. No, it's so that we can be armed as it comes to living out the Christian life, and more importantly, as we're living our life on mission for King Jesus. So would you pray with me? Lord, thank you that you have supplied us with all that we need as the children of God. You've given us all power Every resource that we need, Lord, to do what you've called us to do, you've already supplied. Lord, may we appropriate that in faith. And Lord, we're so thankful that the battle is the Lord's and that victory has already been won through the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, who's ascended, who's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And so, Lord, as I stand and preach this morning, I pray that you would give me words, words that would edify and that would build up and make much of the name of Jesus, for it's in his name that I pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Oftentimes, we're unprepared for when things go wrong in our daily lives. And when they do, we begin to complain to ourselves something to the fact that life should not be this way. Because somewhere along the way, we've convinced ourselves that life should not be the struggle that it is. And especially the Christian life, why is it that when we serve the Lord or when we really strive to please Him and live for Him, why, why is it that things seem to get harder and not easier? Now, I don't know if that's been your experience, but I would imagine if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you would agree with me that that's been your experience. Well, if you've often wondered that, then this sixth chapter of Ephesians is a, passion, a passage that will help you understand why life is hard for believers. But more importantly, it will explain why life is hard for believers while reminding us that we're not alone in our struggles. And if we fail to understand this passage, then it will really keep us from facing life uh, uh, unprepared. And, and the thing is, we need to be prepared when we, when we go to facing all kinds of attacks from the evil one, the enemy of your soul. Sinclair Ferguson has said that this passage emphasizes that human causes and effects are not the only forces or influences operative in the history of the world. In fact, the storyline of the Bible is really the story of conflict God's redemptive plan, all that he's done to accomplish our salvation in the person of his son, Jesus. And really, there are only four chapters in the Bible where we really read of no conflict. You've got the first two chapters of the Bible, which describe God's perfect creation. Uh, You've got the last two chapters of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22, that describe the new heavens and the new earth, this magnificent description of the eternity which is to come, where evil has been eradicated, and we live with the Lord Jesus Christ and with the saints all throughout eternity to come. But between the first two chapters of the Bible and the last two chapters of the Bible, There is this long war that's being fought on a cosmic scale. A war that's being waged between God and the devil. And it's a war that's being played out both in the spiritual realm, as well as upon earth and the stage of human history. Why is it that so many atrocities have been committed uh, throughout human history? Uh, Why is it that the last century has been perhaps the bloodiest of centuries in all of human history? Well, folks, it's because we live in a fallen world that's come under the dominion of the evil one. And as believers, you and I are somehow caught in the middle of it. So the Apostle Paul tells us that we're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and the rulers of the darkness of this age, And he says, spiritual host of wickedness in the heavenly places. In other words, we have an enemy who opposes us at every point and seeks our demise. And so this passage of Scripture, it's one of the most well-known passages, perhaps, in all of the Bible, and yet it's also one of the most misunderstood, misconstrued, practically neglected texts of Scripture. Let's just be honest, we're immersed in a culture that says that the spiritual does not exist. Or if it does exist, it can be whatever you want it to be. In the wake of the enlightenment, we're living in a post-truth, post-Christian age where everything has been reduced to atoms and the molecular level and that kind of thing so that the prevailing notion of our time is that all that there is is really what you can see what you can taste, what you can touch. And so Western Christianity struggles when it comes to even beginning the task of spiritual warfare. But here's where we can really learn something from our Eastern brothers and sisters in different contexts. I've had the opportunity to be able to spend time with believers in Southeast Asia, uh, believers uh, in, in, in parts of Africa, uh, believers in parts of South America, the global south, different. And listen, they have absolutely no problem when it comes to believing in a spiritual realm and understanding the fact that there are indeed evil spiritual forces which try to work against us as the church in the proclamation of the gospel message. But for some reason, in the West, even within the church, we may give lip service to the idea that there is a dart evil, spiritual realm, where there are entities that oppose us, but we don't think about it. In fact, we even structure our ministry now to be so pragmatic, materialistic, that we really don't even need the power of God to be successful as a church. All we need is clever marketing. All we need is some good speaker. All we need is good music, and that's what will really draw a crowd. All right, now I'm come, i am come. It's been six weeks since I've preached. I'm preaching this morning. But if we really believed that the souls of men, women, and children were in the grip of darkness and in the grip of the evil one who wars against our soul, if we really believed what the Apostle Paul had to say when he said that the God of this world, the evil one, he's blinded the minds of people. He wants to keep people in the dark as to the truth. If we really believed that, then we would make prayer that much more of a priority in our personal lives we make prayer that much more of a priority in the corporate life of our church. Because ultimately we realize we're powerless when it comes to doing anything of spiritual value. We're powerless when it comes to doing anything when it comes to saving people and snatching people from the jaws of hell itself. But you see, here's the thing. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life. Uh, The Apostle John says that the reason the Son of God, the, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Greater is he that is in me than he that's in the world. And so all of these spiritual resources are ours in Jesus Christ. And that's something that Paul wants us to understand here in this letter to the Ephesian church. Now, I want to give you just a 30,000 foot view of this passage of scripture. And, and, And sort of to do that, I want to just point out a couple of things. Number one, notice with me the context to be considered because it'd be real easy for us to just wanna jump into this passage here in chapter six, totally forgetting the fact that there have been five plus chapters of content that the Apostle Paul has had to say about the believer's union with Christ and the spiritual wealth that is ours in Christ. And so that word finally there should be a clue that Paul has had a lot to say prior to verse 10. Now, usually when a preacher says something along these lines, in my final point, most people breathe a sigh of relief because they're thinking the end is in sight. And, and sometimes, I'll just be honest, preacher confession here, we say that just to keep your attention for a few more minutes because we still got a lot to say. But it gives you a little bit of hope when we say my last point is, or finally No, Paul is specific. He's he's about to close out his letter here when he says, finally, or finally my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And so he's dealing with this issue of spiritual warfare and in order for us to understand that, well, we really need to discern what it meant for Paul and his readers in the first century. And so, before we really dive into this passage of scripture like we're going to do over the next few weeks, we really need to pay attention to what he's already explained, all right? So what do we need to understand by way of context? Well, context here is threefold. Uh, You need to know something first about the city of Ephesus. All right, Paul's writing a letter to the Ephesians or the Ephesian believers in the city of Ephesus. Now in Paul's day, the city of Ephesus was the most important city in Asia Minor. And uh, it had a population somewhere around a quarter million people. If we were to go to modern-day Turkey, we could tour the ruins of the ancient city. But in in the first century, Ephesus was really the primary harbor for the region. And so the city was strategically located at the mouth of the Kastor River, not far from where that river flowed into the Aegean Sea. And so travelers by ship, um, who in, they disembarked there at that harbor. They traveled along this wide, column-lined road called the Arcadian Way all the way into the city's center. Now, it's interesting. Scholars point out that back during the first century, uh, silt that was being deposited by the river was slowly filling up the harbor, which forced the city to constantly work in order to keep that channel open. And so the battle would eventually be lost and now today's ruins are some six miles from the sea. Now pay attention to that because in Ephesus what was water became land, what was land became water. Unseen forces were constantly at work to alienate the citizens of the city from its lifeblood, from its harbor, from its port. Now that would be a really good illustration of what the enemy would try to do later on in the church. You remember many years later, Jesus writes a letter to the church at Ephesus, Revelation chapter two. And he says something to the Ephesian believers. He says, I have this against you. You've left your first love. Passionate love for him was slowly being replaced by busyness in his name. Spiritual matters were being reduced to mere formality. And by the way, that's one of the enemy's primary tactics. It's not that he just wants to fill your calendar with bad things, but it may just be that he wants to fill your calendar with good things so as to keep you from the best things, sitting at Jesus' feet, feasting upon his riches of his grace, giving yourself to pursuing his mission in the world. The enemy, if he can just confuse the church and distract the church, then he can sideline the church. And so something worth mentioning is the fact that Ephesus had a reputation for being really a center for magical practices that tried to manipulate the spiritual world. The patron deity of Ephesus was the goddess Artemis, whom the citizens of Ephesus believed to hold power over nature and over the spirits, and ultimately over fate itself. And so, so many of the citizens, the leading citizens of the city were involved, deeply involved in occultic practices, pagan religion. And so, don't think so much that they were modern materialists in the sense that the average American is today in, in, in post-Christian America. They, they believed in the spiritual realm. But you see, they were not in the truth, It was pagan religion, it was mystical, and so there were deep avenues that had been opened up into the demonic. Now that's the city of Ephesus, but what about the church? Because we need to know something about the church that had been planted there in the city itself. Well, Acts chapter 18 says that Paul came to Ephesus first, he first came to Ephesus on his second missionary journey, long about 53 AD or something. But he didn't really stay there very long. Uh, Luke, who writes the book of Acts, he he tells us that that Paul left Aquila and Priscilla along with Apollos there. And then some two years later, Paul makes it the base of his outreach throughout all of Asia Minor. Acts chapter 19 says that he ends up staying in Ephesus for uh, more than two and a half years. And it was the longest that the apostle Paul ever stayed in one place so that by the time he leaves Ephesus, the church that had been planted at Ephesus was a strong church, a vibrant church, became the mother church of many of the other congregations that were scattered throughout Asia Minor. And so Luke says in in Acts chapter 19 that on a daily basis, they were in a place called the Hall of Tyrannus. The apostle Paul was showing from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. This continues for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now listen to this, verse 11 of Acts 19, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So God was doing a great work, but it was not without enemy opposition because men and women who were under the influence of the demonic, they were being set free. Acts chapter 19 even tells us that one such event caught the entire city's attention. Uh, There were some itinerant Jewish exorcists who decided to invoke the name of Jesus over those who were possessed with evil spirits. And there were seven sons of a Jewish priest named Sceva who, who said, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. And so the man who's possessed by the demonic spirit says, Jesus I know. And Paul, I recognize, uh, but who are you? And then Luke says that this demonized man, he leaps upon them, masters and overpowers them so that they flee from the house, naked and wounded. Now, how's that for an exorcism? I mean, listen, the exorcism, they ain't got nothing on that. But fear fell upon them all, the Bible says, so that the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified Now listen to this, and it has such a major impact there on the city that the whole city takes note of it. Listen, when God shows up and people are being set free, it's something that other people take note of. And so verse 18 of Acts 19 says that many of those who were now believers, they came confessing, divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. They counted the value up to be more than fifty thousand pieces of silver, and so to put that in perspective, this would have been in the millions of dollars. It would have been the equivalent of one the salary, the annual salary of one hundred fifty people. So spiritual awakening then had come to the city of Ephesus, and so here you have these very people who had been steeped in false religion; they're now becoming Christians. That leads to a growing church. They then began to part with their former ways of living and believing. But this spiritual awakening has consequences because Luke goes on to say that there's a silversmith there in the city of Ephesus. His name is Demetrius. And he made his, his living by, by making silver shrines of the goddess Artemis. And so he gathers together the others who were in that similar trade and convinced them that Paul was a threat to the city's welfare. So, the whole city is set in an uproar and confusion, and the situation was so serious that the disciples were concerned for Paul's life, and so he leaves the city. But, it was not before a vibrant church had been planted there in the heart of that city of darkness. Now, that's the context of of the city, the context of the church. Well, what about the context of, of Paul's correspondence to the church, which is this letter known as the Ephesians? He's writing from prison in Rome long about seven years after the fact. And and he's explaining to these Ephesian Christians the spiritual realities of being in Christ. What he's concerned for in Ephesians is that they they, they possess a Christian worldview in the midst of such a dark and pagan culture. And so his statement all the way back in chapter 1, verse 1, as he begins his letter, really reveals to us his overall intention He says, to the saints who were in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. That is, he wants them to know what it means to be in Christ, what it means to be in God, what it means to have the Spirit of God living on the inside. And so Ephesians is this great doctrinal letter that deals with the believer's union with Christ and the position of the believer in Christ. He says, physically, you're there in Ephesus, but that's not really the basis of your security because you're in Ephesus physically, but let me tell you, you are in Christ spiritually, and therein is the basis of your security. Therein is your salvation. Therein is the secret of your power and the authority that's yours spiritually, And so for the first three chapters uh, here in Ephesians, the Apostle Paul explains the believer's position in Christ. Sometime this week, you need to just spend time in chapter one and just read the the wealth that's yours by virtue of your union with Christ. The fact that you are in Christ as a believer. There's a wealth of, of, of resources that are yours, and all of this is true of your position, Now, you get to long about chapter four, and Paul's emphasis shifts from the positional realities of what it means to be in Christ. Well, now he's going to talk about the practicalities. In other words, here's how you ought to live in light of your position in Christ. Your position in Christ ought to lead you to live a way of living that's consistent with your position. And so he deals specifically with areas of life, such as your family life, your marriages. He's dealing with the church and the relationship between Jew and Gentile, and how that middle wall of division's been broken down. And and, and now there's this wonderful unity that's true of the body of Christ, though the body of Christ is made up of people from different ethnic backgrounds. What's the basis of their unity? Well, it's, it's not their skin color. It's not their political stripe. No, it's their common union in Christ. Uh, He deals with this relationship between children and parents in the first part of chapter 6. The workplace environment. In, In context, in his day, it's bond servants and their masters. So just the practicalities of life. He's going on down the line, and he's saying, look, walk in a manner that's worthy of the calling with which you've been called in all of these areas. And then that brings us all the way to verse number 10 where he says, finally. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And so don't think that what he says here about spiritual warfare is simply an addendum, a postscript, uh, an attachment on spiritual warfare that's disconnected from what he's already said. No, no. He's saying you need to know That all of these areas of life, which I have outlined, these are the very areas where the enemy of your soul launches his greatest attacks against you. The unity of the church, Uh, the understanding of your identity in Christ, the relationship between husbands and wives, the family relationship, home life, the workplace. What does Satan seek to do? The enemy of your soul, he seeks to confuse you and to bring bring division where God has brought unity. He wants to undo what's been done. He wants to destroy what's been built. He wants to undermine what God's done in your life. So don't think of spiritual warfare then as being something that's disconnected from everything else in your life, no. Men and women, every area of our lives are areas that can come under attack from the evil one, which is why Paul says, don't give him an opportunity. We'd better not be ignorant of his devices. And so that's the context then that needs to be considered. Now, notice secondly, the conflict that needs to be understood because Paul's dealing with this spiritual conflict. Finally, my brethren, uh, finally be, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So he wants us to know that in Christ, we have all the resources and all the power we need to live the Christian life. Our salvation is secure due to our vital union with Christ, but there's just one more thing we need to know. In spite of all of this power that's ours, resurrection power, life in a fallen world will not be easy. It will involve conflict for the man or woman who is in union with Christ. And so that's how Paul is ending his letter. It's a call to arms. It's a battle cry for every believer. So listen, I hope that we've never bought into this idea, this kind of teaching that sort of says, well, if you trust Jesus and you become a follower of Jesus, you'll never experience turbulence again in your life. (laughs) That if you're just enduring some type of conflict, if there's some type of conflict in your life, it's just a result of your lack of faith. You don't have enough faith and that's why you're experiencing conflict. And there's a Greek word to describe that kind of mindset, that kind of teaching. You know what it is? Baloney. It's a good Greek word. Because it's not true. Because if you are experiencing conflict, rather than that being something that's demoralizing to your faith, debilitating to you as a man or a woman, it ought to be something that really is encouraging in a roundabout way. Because it ought to be a reminder to you that, you know what? There's spiritual life that's been imparted to me. Christ has come to take up residence in me. And so if it feels like you're fighting hell by the acre in your life, don't be discouraged by that fact. But realize that it just goes with the territory by virtue of your union with Christ. Paul's explained this back in chapter 2 when he says that there was a time when you were dead in your trespasses and your sins. You, You once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But every now and then you come across those wonderful conjunctions. And Paul says, but God, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you've been saved. And he's raised us up with him. And he's seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That phrase, in the heavenly places, it's Paul's way of referring to the spiritual realm. It's the very same phrase that he uses there uh, in, in verse number 12 where he says, this is where the enemy launches his attack against us. We're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, in the spiritual dimension. And so there are spiritual powers aligned with Satan who oppose us on every level. And so you experience conflict as a believer because you're not of his kingdom anymore. You've got a new king. You've been given a new citizenship. Your name's been written in the Lamb's Book of Life. My citizenship is in heaven. Just like these believers, they may have been in Ephesus, but They were in Christ and there was nothing that the enemy could ever do to see to it that they were no longer in Christ. And the same thing is true for you. You're in high point. You're finding yourself in a mess this morning. You feel like you're in deep. You don't know what to do. The enemy's waged an assault on your mind. You're about to give up. You're about to throw in the towel, but you need to be reminded that even though you are in high point, you are in Christ. And there's nothing that the enemy of your soul can ever do about that. Yes! That's why eternal security is such a wonderful doctrine, such a comforting truth to the people of God. So there's a conflict then, really a conflict of kingdoms, which is why ministry and gospel ministry For the church, it's never going to be an easy thing because we're taking territory from the usurper. And he fights against that. But again, greater is he that is in me than he that's in the world. So that's the context to be considered, uh, the conflict to be understood, and then notice last, there's counsel here to be obeyed. And we won't have time to get into this, but we'll spend... The remainder of our time in the weeks ahead dealing with Paul's counsel here. He says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand. He says, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. And then he says in verse 14, stand. So four times He's calling us to stand, but we don't stand in our own strength, we don't stand in our own resources, we don't stand in our own smarts, because really I don't have any, you don't have any, but we stand in the power which is ours in Jesus Christ. And so all the resources that I need to do hand-to-hand combat, by the way that's the idea behind this word wrestle, there in verse number twelve, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. You know, part of the enemy's strategy is to convince, you, to, to deceive you as to the nature of who your enemy is. Because if he can get us to turn our guns on one another, <laughs> that's just one of his number one tactics. If he can just convince humanity to just train their guns on each other, then he can just operate there unseen, undetected in the shadows. No, listen, the Apostle Paul is, he's, he's, he's saying, no, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual evil. I want you to stand with me this morning. I've got to stop here. How do we stand against the enemy, Pastor? How do we really do that? Well, think about this, you need to know that your number one issue is not your circumstances, whether or not you're in Ephesus, so to speak. That's not the number one issue. It's not other people. It's not physical. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against these unseen powers. And you know, Satan, he often tries to prevent you from taking these spiritual realities seriously, because if he can divert your attention away, from that spiritual reality, then he can keep you from the one and only place where your victory is found. And it's the spiritual reality of who you are as a believer in Jesus Christ. You ever wonder why it is that sometimes life just seems like a battle? Why does there seem to be division in the home? Why does there seem to be such division at times in, in marriages? Why does there seem to be just such hostilities? In, 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 in the political climate, even of our nation, we live in a just really a divisive time, don't we, men and women? We wrestle not against flesh and blood. Let's not forget who the real enemy is. And even in our own struggle against sin, you know, you and I can never use the cop-out, well, the devil just made me do that. The devil may exploit you, they may exploit your tendency and your weaknesses and tempt you, but you know the thing is, when I sin, I always, my will's always involved there. But the good news of the gospel is that God has given me everything in Christ that I need. Positionally, I've been given the righteousness of Jesus. And I'm going to show you the next few weeks how the armor of God that Paul outlines here, it's Christ himself. Now think about that. Truth, righteousness, salvation, gospel peace, the Spirit of God, the Word of God, everything that you've been given, Christ himself who is the believer's victory. And so don't be defeated. Don't be discouraged, but be encouraged. If you don't know Jesus this morning, listen, what's keeping you from coming to faith in him? Confess your sin and say, Lord, I realize that I'm a sinner. I've sinned against you. My number one issue is that I am separated from God because of my sin. But I believe that Jesus has done all that's necessary through his death and his resurrection. His suffering and dying in my place. He's done everything that's necessary to reconcile me to God. To save me. To cleanse me. To forgive me. To give me righteousness. To give me standing with God heads bowed and eyes closed. Lord, thank you for such spiritual truth. God, we're not even scratching the surface this morning. As a preacher, I feel wholly inadequate, Lord, to stand and proclaim such wonderful truth. Lord, we are entrenched in a battle, locked in a battle, And we can't stand in our own cleverness. We can't stand in our own resources. But, Lord, we've got to stand in the power that Christ himself supplies and put on the whole armor of God. Because as we leave here and we go back to our places of work and as school starts, families gather, issues come up. Inevitably, Lord, there's going to be issues of conflict. But as believers, help us to be wise to the spiritual realities behind it all. And look to Jesus, who's our faithful and victorious captain, in whose name we pray. Amen.